0: If you'd open up your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a penny. So he called the disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance." But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood.
1: I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me as we look at this passage from Mark chapter 12. Here at the end of this chapter, we've been in this chapter for a while. There's so much that has taken place in it. We continue with Jesus in his tour of the temple and of Jerusalem. And the more I read this section... Of Mark, the more I get the impression that Jesus and his disciples, who have spent so much of their time in the countryside of northern Israel, and the countryside and villages there, are making their way through each important spot in Jerusalem and in the temple. They're, it's like Jesus is taking them on a walking tour of the essential religious center. And Jesus is bringing them deep and profound glimpses, not so much about the city, not so much about the temple, but about the gospel of the kingdom of god to which these things were to point and of which these things were a shadow now as jesus goes about his walking tour of the city his authority has been challenged we saw that before chapter 12 we've seen how he has been suspiciously questioned by various members of the sanhedrin and each time he's overcome the interrogation so that last week he begins to open up and reveal even more about himself, and particularly about the Messiah, about who is the Christ. So today we see Jesus step aside, okay? And he's going to step aside, and he's going to teach his disciples. So far, most of what's been happening in the temple has been very public. A lot of his teaching has been very public. But he's going to teach his disciples a particular object lesson, a lesson that's essential to the gospel of the kingdom, to Mark's gospel. I would argue that the central theme verse of the Gospel of Mark is actually found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We looked at it a number of weeks ago. Chapter 10, verse 45 goes like this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. All right, pause, hear that? Do you hear it? And to give his life as a ransom for many. So the giving of his life accomplishes Something. But there is a pattern that goes on repeat for all who come after him. His giving accomplishes functionally an it is finished moment of the gospel. But there is a pattern that comes for all who follow after him, which is serve not to be served, but to serve and to give our lives. In our passage, Jesus steps back. And he makes an observation uh, from which we can observe the way of the Christ. And the way of the Christ, the way of the Messiah, is a remarkable contrast to the religious leaders that Jesus is going to draw our attention to today, specifically the scribes. We'll look at them a little closer. And then Jesus will use the least likely of candidates as a sort of foil to, to illustrate the way of his kingdom. This is what we'll see. In just a few moments. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in the midst of your word. That your spirit would impress upon us understanding. Not only understanding, but faith to receive the benefit of your word. Your word would work in human souls this morning. Your word would work in the midst of the congregation. And your word would work so that it multiplies and increases in this county. Lord, if you would do that this morning, we would say that's miracle. So Lord, we ask for the miracle of your grace by your spirit and word in the midst of your people this morning, not only here, but across the churches in this county and in your world. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things. Amen. This morning's passage is broken into two sections. If you have your Bible open, you can kind of see the sections right there in front of you in the first section that we look at, beginning in verse 38, Says in his teaching, he said. So he's still teaching in a relatively public fashion, and he says, I mean, a ridiculously controversial thing. All right, something that's probably going to get him in a bit of trouble here real soon. Not that he's in not in a lot of trouble already. We, these people are, after all, looking for an opportunity to kill him, according to scripture. All right, but he says, in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes. All right? That's how this passage begins. The scribes are an interesting group in the Gospels. We've seen them show up a few times. We see them show up in the other three Gospel accounts, and Matthew, and Luke, and John. On many of the contentious issues of the day, even in Mark, we actually see that Jesus finds himself in basic theological agreement with this group of religious leaders. A basic fundamental theological agreement agreement with the scribes. Yeah, the the ones he just said, beware the scribes. Ultimately, as as much as they would agree on the theological points regarding the resurrection, they would actually agree about the lineage of the Messiah descending from David. The scribes, at the same time, uh, while they agree on the essential, would not agree on the essential nature of the gospel of the kingdom, of God. And so what they do is they find themselves on the outside of the kingdom. And Jesus is warning them, as much as we would agree theologically on a number of points, they are actually outside of the kingdom of God. One of the reasons that I mention this is that we should be careful to understand that Jesus is making a generalization in his teaching in today's passage. That's important because, man, do we love to take groups from the Bible, keep them groups, and then just hit them, you know? We make them the bad guys, which simultaneously, what's it do for us? Makes us the good guys, you know? And so we just rip on the scribes. We ought not to think that Jesus is giving us a warning about every single individual in the scribal tradition, Jesus isn't accusing every single scribe of self-righteousness or unjust self-advancement, but he is telling his disciples to open their eyes and to see that, that many in this tradition, who though they're esteemed in the religious culture, are actually in danger of being those who are outside of the kingdom itself. That's the warning, the essence of the warning that Mark, is recording for us in our passage from Jesus today. I think that there's an opportunity for us to step aside and reflect for a moment. Let's do so. Think about it. Cross Point Coast, if you've been around for any amount of time at all, you will notice, especially if you were stuck for an hour and a half, 15 minutes with me in a partnership course, you will see that we're kind of big on this theological truth thing. We esteem truth. We, we search for an accurate account of the things of God, which, by the way, is what the scribes were doing, at least. They were seeking an accurate account of the things of God. They were theologically serious. I've often thought that if I were to have participated in the theological culture of Jerusalem in the historical moment in which we find the Gospels, that I would probably find myself labeled as a scribe. It's my guess. And yet, it's about just such a group that Jesus offers a warning, beware of people like that. Beware the scribes. Beware of people that might find themselves even in a tradition like ourselves, theologically serious, searching out carefully the things of God, giving great attention to the writings of God. And when Jesus puts forward this, Caution to his disciples. He doesn't point to their theology. He doesn't take issue there. What he does is he points to their character. See, I like thinking about theology. I like being theologically serious. We're going to talk about character now? Do we have to do that today, right? Because there might be a warning for us. Maybe we ought to be warned. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're warned in this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2, in the midst of a series of warnings, it says, And if I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge and have not love, I am nothing. Are we warned? Beware of me, Jeremiah. Beware of us, church. Beware of our theological seriousness if we have not love. So, what about the scribes does Jesus find so dangerous? What's so dangerous about these theologically serious group of people? Look at verses 38 and 39 with me. Beware the scribes who, and now we're going to find out why to beware, who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. We'll pause there. There's more that he has to say, but this is Jesus's concern. They want, they like to be honored and elevated. He he calls them out for their long robes and greetings. They've learned all the cultural and religious practices that would draw attention to themselves. Their robes, were uh, perhaps expensive though perhaps not the scribes were not known for being wealthy like the sadducees were another group that was in the sanhedrin okay the scribes weren't known for their wealth they were known for their shows of piety all right their 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 displays of their religious practices more important than whether or not the robes were expensive is that they were a sign of a devoted life okay Numbers chapter 15 is where we get a little glimpse into what were these robes that they're wearing. Numbers chapter 15 verse 38 says, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. So they should still be doing this. Put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Why? That's just weird for a command for religious people. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember All the commandments of the Lord and and to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Now, that's an important phrase we should come back to in a bit. We are inclined to go after the things of our own eyes, but rather the tassels were there to remind them of the things of God. And what are they doing? They're walking around with the robes to remind everybody who is there of the things of themselves. And their own self-righteousness. And how good they are at remembering the things of God. Which means you're not, what? Remembering the things of God, right? God's actually gave them the idea to wear the robes. But in the wickedness of the human heart, we so easily turn the gifts of God inward to elevate ourselves above God and his glory. The robes are a good idea. What's going on in the heart of these scribes is not. note the next verses regarding the commands in numbers these are literally the next verses that come verse 40 so you shall remember and do all my commandments right i mean that's going to be the great effect of giving you this gift of a robe to remind you of these things you're going to remember it and you're going to be holy to your god i am the lord your god who brought you out of the land of egypt to be your god i am The Lord, your God, he says again. You see, the purpose of the robes and the tassels were not to point to your self-righteousness. The purpose of the robes and tassels were to remind you of the righteousness of our God and the holiness and the glory, the lordship and the godness of his way. To remind those who wore them that they were bound by dependence upon the Lord who is their rescue and salvation, just like they were out of Egypt. You belong to me. By my grace, by my kindness, by my holiness, the Lord is God, not the self. The Lord is holy. We are the ones that need the reminders. And here they are, walking around the temple courts, with their reminders that who is holy, right? The robe's are a good idea. They're just looking at the people instead of the robes, you see. Today I might think of a big calfskin leather Bible with lots of ribbon hanging out, right? We strut those things around to demonstrate just how many chapters I've been busy reading this week. I'm just checking. I've got four, just four making sure. Now, what you don't know is this Bible actually stayed here, and I have a different Bible that I use at home. I remember years ago, I actually bought an extra ribbon thing, and I actually pinned it in the back so I could have an extra five ribbons to put in my Bible. It's a good idea to remind me of all the things to read in my Bible, but if I walk around like this on a Sunday morning, do you see? A good idea just became a problem, all right? We have yeah, we don't wear robes. We don't wear tassels on our robes, but we have lots of good ideas that become idolatry. And perhaps in a digital age, some of you are like, I don't have to put ribbons in my digital Bible. You know, I would if I could. You know, maybe I'll just make my home screen a verse and carry it around like this on Sunday morning, right? In a digital age, it might be, but like taking a selfie of our most recent devotional book with a nice blurred background of, of coffee, right? Latte in the morning, the obligatory, obligatory accompaniments, time with Jesus, hashtag blessed, right? And maybe even the verse that you're reading that just talks about dependence upon God in the morning, right? I've seen it. I'm not going to talk about whether or not I've ever done it, but it happens. It is in the human heart. And then he goes on to talk about the best seats and places of honor, it's a little difficult for us to get this because we don't necessarily live in an honor culture, right? We don't we don't like set aside too many seats in sort of normal daily life. It's for instance in Mongolia a far more honor culture than we have here in the U.S. When I entered a gear, which is their word for a round tent home that many in the culture live in, I was told that when I entered the door, I was to turn left and then to follow the circular home around to the seat that is opposite the doorway. Now, understand in Mongolia, it is very cold. In U.B. Ulaanbaatar, where we were, it's the coldest capital city in the world, okay? And so where is the seat of honor? far away from the door where it's warm, right? And it was reserved for an elder male in the home to sit there, and just to the left of him, equally opposite the door, was his wife. And I was told that when I enter with my gray beard, the family was wanting me to have a nice close spot to the warmest place so my old bones don't just get brittle, (laughs) right? I took it. (laughs) Thank you. I like it. I appreciate that. You see, an honor culture is actually quite good. Let's let the old guy sit in the comfy seat. That's probably not a bad idea. The younger kids can handle it. We have something similar in my home uh, growing up. We, in, particularly in the homes of my uncles, we would enter into their homes. And in each of the homes of my uncles, you got to understand my mom is one of 10 siblings. So I got a, a pile of uncles to choose from. And we would enter into their homes and there was a recliner. Okay. One of the cousins was brave enough during the course of the day to sit in the recliner while the uncles were at work. When the uncle would come home and we would hear the sound of the V8 diesel engine sitting in the driveway as he just lets it sit a little extra long. I think just to let the family hear it roar for a little bit, you know. And he comes in exhausted and sweaty, baked in the sun as he's been working on the roof all day. All my uncles were contractors of some kind, building, repairing homes. And when we would hear that sound, we would pop out of the chair and find somewhere in the house to be other than in that chair. Because you see, the chair was a place of honor. And our elders, our uncles, would sit in that chair. And we would all aspire to be like the uncles. I still do. I'm older than them now than I was when I would look at them in those chairs. And I still want to be... Like those uncles. I still want a recliner. Finally got one and it's too small for me. All right. Here's the thing, though. Our uncles didn't begin that by kicking us out of their chair. You see, there's something a little, little weird about that unless the kid was puffed up and needed to understand honor. No, it wasn't to be puffed up in the pride of his position. It's it's one thing to honor and teach those around us to grow up, to honor, and and to exalt a a beautiful position that my uncle's occupied in the, the, the place of the family. But here's what happened. In the midst of all of that, my uncle would certainly sit down in his chair, but he wouldn't gather all the children at his feet. He'd take us up on his lap, and we'd play and we'd talk about his day. And we all wanted to be contractors when we grew up. I don't know how to do a thing with a tool. All right? But man, would I love to be like my uncles. One practical application at Cross Point Coast is this this is actually why we don't have visiting missionaries or church planters sit in special seats at the front when they come into town. Just a little while ago, we had the Mentons sort of sitting along there. When the Dumfies are in town, they sit somewhere over there, you know? And yet, at times, even during the course of the service, we will give thanks for their presence in the midst of the church. Not in a seat of honor, But in the midst, we honor them in order to give thanks to the Lord who's calling them into his service to teach the congregation the joy of partnership in the gospel. It's not the intention to exalt someone, certainly above the place that the Lord alone occupies. He's the head of the church and all the rest are body, right? The intention is to exalt service, to hold up and honor what Jesus honors, which is those who demonstrate for us in a beautiful way what it is to be a servant of all. Is that not what it means that the the least will be counted as the greatest? It isn't that they get out of the least seat. It's that they stay there because that's the beautiful place to sit. verse 40, we need to keep moving, right? We got a couple things to cover. Verse 40 says, at the beginning, those who devour widows' houses. Man, could we talk about this one for a while? We only have a minute. It's unclear how exactly they devoured widows' houses. The tragedy is that we can actually think of so many numerous ways that they might have. That's the really brokenhearted thing. One commentator says it this way, it could be through excessive legal fees, through mismanaging their, their own advantage of, of the estate, that maybe they were made trustees, maybe they were taking these houses as pledges for debts that they knew to be unpayable, I and mean, it's a good way to get a hold of some new real estate, is to put someone into debt under you. Maybe they were promoting the temple cult, which eats up the resources of the pious poor, or more generally through exploiting their hospitality and trust. And those are just a few of the ideas of the ways that we could take advantage of literally devouring widows' houses. Personally, I find the two, last two, that this commentator mentions the most egregious, to promote the institution of religious life among the pious, yet impoverished. That is, listen... To leverage the the persuasive power of the religious institution. The, The power, look how beautiful the temple is. Come and contribute here and you can be a part of something big. Something you believe in. Something you're faithful to. Like a pious, old widow. And yet to use the limited resources of the poor to advance the institution. Rather than using the resources of the institution to serve the plight of the impoverished in their midst. There's something that's upside down about using the poor as leverage for the increase of the institution. And at the same time, on the other hand, to exploit the pervasive charisma of the institutional leadership to abuse hospitality and trust, to schmooze the impoverished by your position in the religious life of the people to take advantage of the love and the good deeds of those with limited resources, to advantage, prestige of the religious leaders, rather than to seek the, leader, the leadership themselves, seeking to shepherd those with the greatest need with what? Gentleness, understanding that the shepherds of the church are called to exhibit. The very real and tragic history is that the history of our faith has often sought to advance themselves and and to consolidate power on the backs of those who the Lord has sent us to serve in the first place. It's not difficult to imagine humans doing these sorts of things. We've got a long history of it. So what's happening here might be summarized again. By, By leveraging the good that is inherent in a culture of honor but leveraging that good for the advancement of the honored, rather that the honored would be those who serve. Do you see? I think of my uncles again. It's true that they popped out of their chair, right? That we popped out of their chair because we knew what honor looked like. But then they used that chair to love us well. That's what the chair exists for if there's any chair like that in any home. Whatever position we are allotted in this world, and, and make no mistake, there's not a person here that isn't allotted some position, some place in this world. Whatever position we're allotted, we're not given to establish and advance our own little kingdoms, or our own little place in a kingdom that we're building together. Again, Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 44, leading up to that statement we read earlier, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. I want you to see this. Understand the logic of it. Don't just presume it. It does not say those who are slaves are the greatest in the culture. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say those who are made to be servants are the greatest in the culture. That's a poverty theology it says that those who would be great among you must be servants. If you find yourself anything close to great in the midst of the church, your business is to become increasingly slave to others. That is a kingdom mentality. Thirdly, The second part of verse 40, who devour widows' houses and make a pretense, make, I'm sorry, and for a pretense make long prayers. They make a pretense of godliness, prayer. They even made the humility of prayer a means of self-advancement. Man, our hearts are good. They're just, uh, they have some talent at evil. We are creative when it comes to self-righteousness. Who are they praying to? They're praying to their own self-righteous cause. They're, they liked the flimsy veneer of self-righteousness over the righteousness of God. This is what they like. I, I love that. Jesus is clear. This is not just what they do. In fact, I, I would argue probably everything that they were functionally doing was probably a good idea. Even, even the idea of allowance of, of, of debt leveraged. Capital can be leveraged in a variety of ways. But what was the problem was that they liked it. They didn't like the beauty of it. They liked what it did for them. They liked the appearance of religion. They like all this religious stuff, but there's no evidence that they liked the Lord, let alone obeyed the first commandment, which is to love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Notice Jesus doesn't take issue with prayer. He doesn't have a problem with public prayer. He doesn't necessarily even have a problem with long and poetic prayer. His issue is with pretense. They made a pretense of prayer. His issue is that they weren't praying. They were praying and not praying at all. Honestly, one of the reasons why I often pause in prayer, a very functional thing that I, I do very regularly. I'm, I'll be praying along, I'll be saying words, and I'll be thinking. Even whether it's in public or on my own or with friends, I'll pause in prayer and I'll think, am I still praying? Like I'm, I'm doing the activity, which is probably a good thing, like the, the activity that's been given to us. But am I still praying? <laughs> Who am I talking to? To here, Who are we talking with? The Lord? Or am I talking to those that I'm praying with? And I won't give you the percentage answer. <laughs> all right? Beware is what we're told. Beware. I think there are two things that we're being told to beware of. First of all, not to be intimidated. Don't be intimidated by the scribes. They're a problem, not something to aspire to. Just because someone's exalted in a community does not mean that they should be imitated, and nor does it mean that we ought to be intimidated by their place of honor. Should we ask? We should ask, have they been exalted by God? And is there way in the community a way that the Lord himself exalts? Are they exalted by God, or are they exalted by men or even themselves. And then, I think the caution is not only should they not be imitated, nor should we be intimidated, but they should not be indulged. Beware. Don't participate. We should be cautious not to participate in the perpetuation of self-exaltation. Take care not to be impressed by such pretension. Because it's exactly what pretension wants. It wants you to be impressed, and you feed it, and it goes on and on and on, even as we ought to guard our hearts against being puffed up by our own supposed discern. I'm not impressed with you. I discern that you're a problem. Self-righteous, discerning little man, right? Oh, man, our hearts are wicked. We need, we are moment by moment dependent upon the Lord to transform us. There's a reason why we have a prayer of confession every Sunday morning, because it's really a call that we should have a prayer of confession all the time. Our hearts are, as the quote goes, idle factories. Self-righteous, insidious, endemic to the human heart is self-righteousness. Beware, there is an ostentatious, devouring, pretentious wolf in the heart of every one of us. May we decrease and that he would do the work of his increase in our hearts. He says this at the end of this section. They will receive the greater condemnation. I don't like words like that. That's scary. Jesus has pulled out words like that a few times. He did back in chapter 9 verse 42. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. That is a terrifying passage for a church that has so many babies showing up just about every day, including yesterday, and they're all down the hall too. That's scary. Man, are we going to mess this up? That, that should cause us to beware of us. There's a severe warning, a warning to be re- aware of to, to beware of religious impostors like our own hearts. To use religion to hurt rather than to love God and our neighbor. They murder and they steal in the name of the Lord. I, I said to the note where that passage said earlier, to, to whore after. What if we use our position and, 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 and really we're prostituting the religious life that we are to have for our own gain? And no wonder he says greater condemnation. I can't think of anything more, more gross than this. It's one thing to commit crimes. It's another to do so in the name of the Lord, in the name of self-righteousness. For this reason, Jesus warns of a greater condemnation. So let's examine our doctrine. Yes. But let's also examine our hearts. Let us bring our hearts before the Lord and say, I think this is a mess. It's not just my mind. I don't even think it's just my practice that needs the examination of your gospel. and needs to be made free. I think my heart has a problem. Desperately wicked. Heal me, Jesus. We should ask the question, are we busy being right? Meanwhile, our self-righteousness proves us wrong. But for those who are in Christ, you see, I read that, and I'm like, man, I'm burdened. I don't want, I quit. I'm not going to be a pastor of that shepherding mess where we might get a millstone tied around our neck. No way. I'm out. We should all be out. If that's what we have staring at us. But you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ says? That is our human heart. This is our propensity to puff ourselves up, build ourselves position, even on the backs of children we're willing to do this. And that's why your heart needs a savior on a cross. That's why I will never perform up to a level of not being worthy of a millstone around my neck. But Jesus Christ has taken your millstone. I can think of moments where I've used my platform, my position, my opportunity to build my little place in this world for myself. Did you know that Jesus died for that greater condemnation too? So church, don't be afraid. Beware. But don't be afraid. Because the grace of Christ is greater than all your sin. Don't be afraid. Trust trust. Go up to the lap of the one who has the seat of greatest honor. Learn from him. That's what Jesus does, is he takes us to a place to learn. He teaches us something. He teaches his disciples something. He teaches us, and he does it in verse 41, where he teaches us that sometimes less is more. There's a theme, a recurring habit that Mark is recording for us. He sat down in verse 41 opposite the treasury. He watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. The poor widow came, put in two copper coins, which makes a penny. And Jesus called his disciples to him. So Jesus saw a sermon illustration and he decided to use it. All right, He didn't even bother to write it on a note card. He just said, y'all, I have something to teach you. It's interesting to, to imagine Jesus finding some inconspic- in, in, inconspicuous seat in the temple, sitting down in there and watching the activity of offering up to the glory of His name. Imagine that. Be in Jesus watching free will offerings in the temple. And he calls his disciples close and he begins to teach. He's going to give them an unexpected object lesson to drive home what he's been teaching us already this morning. He goes to the he looks at the offering box. It's a, a series of repositories of a variety of free will offerings that people could make in the temple. Various donations are being made. Some many are rich and they're giving large sums and hear this, that's not a bad thing. He doesn't say, Oh, those bad large sums. Right? Such provision is much of the provision for the worship of the Lord in the temple. Much of the provision came from those large sums, those offerings. What Jesus is correcting is a miscalculation of the value of the gifts. The large sums are needed, but that does not make them, therefore, more valuable. He's going to have to do some math for me to understand that sentence. He's calling them to an examination of what is happening in the hearts who give. And then we have the poor widow. She brings two small copper coins. It it, literally means like a leaf. It's like a paper-thin little piece of copper. You put two together and you get a penny. The sum of these coins together was about a laborer's day's wage, so the least denominator of wage that you could give. There's little doubt that this widow contributed uh, that she did, didn't did do much to contribute to what is going on in the temple. What do you buy with just a laborer's day's wage? Probably not even enough to provide for a priest's daily needs. There's a fundamental miscalculation of value taking place here. Jesus is not calculating the pragmatic value and usefulness of this gift compared to the large sums. How much can be bought with a coin as it drops into the coffers? That's not his question. His question is this, and I think this is one of the most important statements that can be made about this passage. The value of the gift is a valuation in light of grace through faith. In light of faith. And we've seen that so many times. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus interacts in different ways depending on the nature of the faith that is present in the life of the one who comes. And his conclusion, his valuation in light of the faith of this poor widow is she has given more than all. She has given with whatever seat God has given her to occupy, she has taken the seat of servant of all. More valuable. Greater value. Not so much practical value for the priests, but greater practical value to the woman and all who were with her. This was her provision for the entire day. What value was her gift to the temple? Very little. What do you buy with a penny in a temple? But what value was the gift to her? It was literally her daily bread. Literally her daily bread. She prays in the morning, give us this day our daily bread. And she goes to the temple and she gives it all. He says it is of greater value. And I think he's contrasting that versus greater use. It's true that the institutions of religion, the temple was instituted by the Lord himself, it's true that the religious life has its institutions, and and they can be good, but we ought we, in that we ought to be cautious of our own culture's individualism to reject every single institution. We have a, a propensity to do that, but that's not what's happening here. It's true that the institutions of religion could make little practical use of the coin that. That, that little that little coin that when pressed together would just become one penny. But the Lord does not deal in the economy of coins and commerce. Where does the Lord work? How, what, what is the valuation that he makes use of in this world? The Lord deals in the economy of faith and dependence. This is where he works. He uses these other things. But the valuation of the Lord is a matter of dependence and faith. And what great use to the lord is this widow's great faith worthless coin valuable faith how many men and women have i visited in nursing homes who have literally been sidelined from the majority of religious institutional life and if they have anything to give it is a small fraction of too little of a check that comes once a month but when i visit them i hear over and over about their life of prayer And they ask me, will you pray for this? And will you pray with me? And can we pray together when I've been in these homes, these sidelined saints? What value? I look at that and I say, the Lord has a calculation of how many are redeemed. How many glorify God today? Because this old man, this old woman, sit in their room and pray. And they give their daily bread, all that they have to give, their time, their greatest resource, day after day, until the Lord calls them home. We don't know until glory the practical benefit of the dependence of sideline saints. This woman is doing more than teaching us something about the value of contribution given in faith as a response to God. She's teaching us some important lessons that that really Mark has been giving us for 12 chapters thus far. Just three things. This woman is a summary of Mark up to this point. She's a beautiful representation of the greatest commandment. I mean, Jesus has just been questioned, "What is the greatest commandment, Master? And he says, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength." And she takes everything that she is, represented in two coins, her very daily bread, all that she was on that day, she takes it and she puts it in and I says, "I love the Lord, my God, with everything. What part does her life of her life was not given in that moment? Second. She is for us a practical demonstration of denying self. When the scribes give us a demonstration of what it is to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. That's Mark chapter 8. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What's she doing? She's saving her life. What is the profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Third, where the scribes were strutting about the temple in their robes, making noise with their prayer, this woman came to the t- temple not to gather self righteous approval. What is there to approve of? And two coins. But the worship of the Lord. She came to worship. Perhaps she was the only one there doing it. She came to worship, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life. And she does, in the form of two little coins. Friends, I look at that and I see beautiful sacrifice. I have so many stories of this during the course of my life that God has given me so many metaphorical and sometimes very real old poor widows. And I'm like, man, I want to be like that when I grow up. There was a poor widow in a nursing home, actually, when I was a little kid, like, like I could barely talk. And she had heard that my family was relatively poor. And she decided to adopt our family with her social security check. And she sent $5 a month to our family in a check over and over again through a friend. We never met her. We never met her. She didn't even live in our town. And she sent our family $5. And my mom she I didn't I didn't have money to go be entertained with my friends. But my mom would give me five dollars on Fridays, and my friends and I would go bowling, it was two fifty a lane, and I'd use two fifty for video games. And it never left my mind that Lady wasn't trying to buy video games, she's trying to provide for a family. And she gave my mom the ability to give me a little fun on a Friday night and go out Friday afternoon and go out with some friends. When I was a little kid, a little kid, what a gift. And what the gift, the gift wasn't video games and the gift wasn't $5. The gift was a lesson in faith. She, she didn't even, she didn't send it with a note of how to use it. Do you see? She gave it to the Lord and he trusted that he'd use it. And he's literally using it to this day in the life of a 44-year-old pastor. And every time I think of the offering, I think, man, we got to be careful because we're spending a widow's gift we better be careful we should use it for the sake of faith and then this morning i know he didn't say anything about it at the beginning of the service because we're going to make much of jesus and today we're here because of jesus but the fact is we got some mothers who are here today and some mothers who are at home taking care of sick kids and we've got other mothers at home taking care of new kids and we got lots of moms around this place and we're thankful Yesterday was my son's graduation. It struck me as the graduates were given their speeches. They were just right up here, a group of them. And as they gave their speeches, it struck me how few of the fathers were mentioned. Now, I did not take offense to that. Trust me, Titus. It's okay. But it struck me that in that particular room, the majority of the finances, the majority in that particular room, this is not always the case. This is generalization just like Jesus did with the scribes. Most of the practical provision of the households in that room came from the father's daily labor. And he comes home, and he's tired, and he wants to sit in his recliner, right? But who did the graduates think? They looked at the room, and they saw something akin to a widow's offering. Mothers who labor in the home or in the workplace to offer their children and their families a unique gift of self-sacrificial love to a person We would do well to sit down, find some inconspicuous place to sit and watch the offering of the moms in the midst of the church. Especially the men of the church would do well to sit down and watch and learn from all of the the gift that God has given, particularly to moms. It's true, he gives grace for the need, and there's much grace that is needed. But to all of the women of the church, there is a unique giftedness, that God has given, we would do well to sit and watch the widow's offering over and over again. There are great contributors of large sums in our culture, great influencers, tech titans, and we all follow them. Man, would we do well to just drop them all today and follow just the moms and be influenced They give the tech titans and the great influencers, they give out of their abundance. But we've watched you moms pour out your lives over and over again. We honor you today, yeah, because your love has taught us to honor and depend on the Lord. And friends, that's the point. Moms, we thank you. Now we're going to be done for that. We're not going to sing songs about you. We're going to sing songs about the Lord like you've taught us to do. And this is what the grace of the gospel has purchased for us. He has purchased a place for every single person here. Man, woman, child, married, not married, children, not children, youth, everyone who is here. He has purchased a place for us, a position for us as his children in the great provision of his kingdom. May our lives look like we've been provided for. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of your gospel. We need not perform, we we need not prove that we're worthy servants. We are at best unworthy servants. That's our good day. And man, is it a good day to be an unworthy servant in your kingdom forever. I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts on our minds, but also in our daily lives. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.